Well, here we are. We are coming up on one of the most well-known chapters in the Bible, and most people are very familiar with this chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, anybody use this chapter? Maybe have it read in their wedding? Anybody in here? Okay. I, I, of all the weddings I've done, and I've done, oh my goodness, close to 100, I've probably read some portion of this chapter in most of them, I would say. Um, you know, and, and as if you were to, this, what I did is I just put into a search engine, I put in 1 Corinthians 13, and then I hit images, and these are the images that popped up. Images like this, which are appropriate. They're very cool looking, and I thought they were great. And so let's, let's get into this, okay? It starts actually, remember how we talked about how the, originally in the Greek there weren't chapter divisions and verses? It wasn't like that. Instead, it flowed like a normal letter that you would write, you know, paragraphs, that kind of thing. And then as the people who put together the King James Bible in 1611 is when they started adding these divisions. So some of the divisions they added weren't necessarily what we would say now and recognize as the right literary uh, separations. So this verse right here comes out of chapter 12. It's the last half of verse 31 where Paul says, let me now show you a way of life that is best of all. Now what Paul is doing and I, I don't want to take any of the luster away from this chapter. For those of you who hold it dear, I don't want to do that. But what I want you to understand is that in his argument that he's trying to help his Corinthian children, his spiritual children, what he does is he's, he's in the middle of an argument, or not an argument, but it's, I mean, we might call it an argument, but he's trying to scold them and teach them something about the, the operation of the gifts of the Spirit started with chapter 12, and then he finishes it in chapter 14. But in chapter 13, he uses this beautiful prose to say some things. And you'll see clearly he changes from, he, he was speaking in the second person, now he, he changes to first person. He says, I will show you something. And in these first few verses, he uses that personal pronoun, I. Now what he does, what he's doing when he does that, is he's using an, an emotional argument. Have you ever noticed that when you're talking with somebody and they say something like, you hurt me. All of a sudden, it changes things, doesn't it? I was hurt when, that's personal. Paul makes it personal. And he can do that. He has every right to make it personal because he's their spiritual father. And when he does that, that adds weight. A rhetorical digression is a, that is a, that's a way when you're speaking you're talk, talking to somebody about something, then you kind of change the subject for a minute. But you're doing it on purpose to make a point and to make some emphasis. It's very poetic. In fact, there, it's the most poetic of all of Paul's writings. And as he writes this, this prose and this phrase, some people, I, you know, people who criticize Bible and they try to tear it up and make it less than what it is there's been actually people who said well see this portion of scripture so different than all of the rest of paul's writings he obviously couldn't have written it he probably just borrowed it from somebody else as we look at this you'll see that he clearly did not because he specifically addresses the issues that he's been talking about with the corinthians already but he does it in such a way that he illustrates for them. remember earlier in the book how he said i didn't come to you with all this beautiful language, I just gave you the plain gospel and let the Holy Spirit's power work. Remember where he said that? Now, in a way, what he's doing is 
he's just, I don't think he's doing this. I think this is just who he is. But he illustrates the fact that he could have, he could have been really poetic all the time and spoke very fancy if he wanted to. That's not what he was trying to do. But right here he does in this portion of scripture. Now, context, essential. We're, we're entering a political season. This is probably the most important time in your political life to pay attention to context. And you know how this happens, right? When you hear a quotation from a certain politician and you think, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're saying that. And you find out, well, that wasn't quite exactly what they said. If you heard everything that they said in context, you'll realize that's not what they meant, right? We've, we've all heard that happen, right? Well, the same thing happens with the scripture. And people can take a text and take it out of context. And then it becomes a pretext for them to say whatever they want. Have you ever noticed that before? People take scriptures, and some people do it in a very well-meaning way. Um, I've had people say things like, well, if I become a Christian, my whole house will be saved. And I'll say, really? How does that work? And they say, well, uh, Paul told the jailer that if he, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your whole house will be saved. I said, well, <laughs> yeah, but that's not, he didn't mean that you're getting saved meant the whole house got saved automatically, not because of that. That's not exactly what he meant. You could take that out of context. And here's something I just want to clarify with you for a moment. As I showed you with those pictures and my internet search, this chapter is most often associated with the love between maybe a husband and wife, right? Kind of romantic love between two people. There's nothing wrong with that. In Scripture, there's a lot of ways you can apply a portion of Scripture. But what's important to understand about this, that's not really the context of what he's talking about. The context of this book is right between chapter 12 and chapter 14, and he's doing something here. He's trying to get them to understand with an emotional argument. And, and really, we'll see later on that this chapter lays out for him and for us as Christians the basis. And it should be the defining. It should define all of our actions as a Christian. He really makes it that big of a deal. So, yes, it applies to husband and wife love and love between people that are romantic. Yes, but that's not the direct initial context of this. So let's take a look. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. I put this word in here. Have you, four hyperbolic examples. Hyperbole, it's exaggeration to make a point. Now, we do this from time to time, right? Nicole's grandma, we were at a, one of our kids had, was in a singing in a thing at school, and there was this other family behind us, and this little kid was being just out of control. And so her grandma was kidding, and she turned around, and she goes, and she was smiling and having fun with the little guy, but she said, if you don't stop it, I'm going to chew your ears off. <laughs> And his eyes got all big. And then she was, tell, she was telling him that, you know, there was a time where our own kids kind of wondered, and they asked Nicole at one point, do you think she would ever do that? <laughs> I mean, that's hyperbole, right? You make an example. Well, Paul is doing that. He's using a rhetorical device, a, a form of language that he makes a point by making some extreme statement that's ridiculous. But look what he chooses to make ridiculous. Tongues. Tongues was something that, unfortunately, the Corinthians were, 
they had elevated above all the other gifts. And so for, for Paul to take tongues and use that in hyperbole and make it an example, basically what he was saying is you're so proud of all the tongues you talk, but even if I spoke tongues, all the languages of every known nation and every angelic language, which is ridiculous, but some of them were bragging like that. He's using those things that they were struggling with to illustrate this point by being, you know, by exaggerating and being silly. He mentions prophecy. Remember what the Corinthians were about? They were Greeks, ultimately, a Greek, a Roman colony that was in a Greek area. They all thought that knowledge and wisdom was the height of everything. So Paul is saying, even if I had all of that, but didn't have love, it wouldn't matter. Then he talks about faith that would move mountains. I mean, faith that he could choose to move a mountain whenever he wanted and to do something like that. It was silliness. Then he says that none of that would matter. He talks about martyrdom. None of that would matter if there wasn't love behind it. And then he says, love, he says, if I had all that, it would be just like a clanging cymbal. Now, noise. He talks about noise. Noise. Have you ever been somewhere and someone was speaking a language unfamiliar to you? And it just sounded like noise. It didn't mean anything, right? I mean, you might understand something of the inflection or the context or the tone or maybe their body language, but the the sound itself was meaningless. Paul is saying it's meaningless. These people lived in an area that was flooded with people from all over the world. They were used to that. Not only, they were probably also familiar with different religious practices where they would maybe bang on a drum or a cymbal or some kind of a loud instrument. What he was saying basically is all the things you have elevated and think are so special, if those things are without love, then they're as useless as the annoying empty sounds that you hear from other languages, that you hear from these instruments. means nothing. Then he goes to define love. What I wanted to do real quickly, though, is to, to... And I know that some of us are very familiar with kind of the four most common Greek words for love. One of the one of the problems with English and especially us who've grown up with English, we didn't learn it as a second language. We we start to use words and, and, you know, we have in English, we have those words homophones, you know, that mean one word means so many different things. So annoying to you know, non-English speakers and trying to figure out our language. Another one, of, another one of the problems is we use a word, love, to describe different things, and the only way for you to understand the, the nuance of what we're talking about is sometimes by the context. So I could say, I love Rick, I love my wife Nicole, and I do love barbecue. Silly. They don't mean the same thing, yet I've used basically the same terminology. Well, in Greek, one of the beauties of Greek, and I, I think, personally, as a personal opinion, I think that God, that's one of the reasons he chose to transmit the gospel in Greek, is because they have many different words for some words that we have one word for. Not only that, they have many tenses and, and parts of speech that we just don't seem to use anymore, so they can be very specific. So when Paul talks about love in this chapter... He's speaking at about a very specific type of love. Now, he's not speaking about eros, which is the root word where we get the word erotic. That would be like more of a romantic love. Um, which, by the way, is a love that kind of comes and goes, right? There's ebbs and tides, even in a marriage. 
You know, we have a honeymoon period. You don't. I mean, right? (laughs) Everybody's like, nobody wants to say yes. Okay. (laughs) Maybe it's just us, Nicole. Uh, Phileo, which is uh, the root word, same root word. We get the, you know, the city of Philadelphia, brotherly love, this type of love between friends. It can also be, you know, the type of love that it's, it's camaraderie. It's the type of love you're supposed to have for strangers, people who you don't know but you get along with and care about. A storge is another type of love, which would be more like a family-type love that you would have, you know, that you might have for a child. You know, that love that happens when you see that baby for the very first time and that feeling you get that that's your child and you're going to love them. You're going to do whatever it takes to care for them forever. That is different than the word Paul used. Paul used the specific word agape. And I want to just go into some of the definitions of this word agape, which he also defines, but I want you to understand some of these things. First of all, this particular love is literally unconditional. This is not a love that's earned in any way. In other words, the person could not do anything to get this love from you, nor could they do something to not be worthy of this love. You, you give this love because it's an act of your will. So it's not based on feelings It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on anything that would change. Gray hair, no hair. (laughs) Right? You know, he's the captain of the football team, and then he's not. None of that. This is not that. This love is an act of the will. I choose to do this. So it doesn't matter if I'm in a good mood, bad mood. It doesn't matter if this person can do something for me or not. It doesn't matter if they look right or they're the right religion or the right color or in the right place or the right time. None of that. This is unconditional. You choose to love this way. That's the love he's talking about. It's a self-denial to the benefit of another. In other words, this kind of love is not when it's convenient for me. It's not the kind of love that I do when, um, <laughs> when I've got extra to give. It's literally self-denial to benefit somebody else. This is the kind of love that Paul uses. He chooses this word intentionally. And then he goes into more detail about it. <laughs> oh, I love this too. In, in Paul's concept, the New Testament concept of love, it's active. It's a verb. Unfortunately, in our society, our concept of love is all emotion. You can feel whatever you want. It's almost like you get credit for just feeling it. It's like the kid that's, you, you know, you, somebody does something wrong and they say, well, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I don't care if you meant to. You did it. But here's the difference is this has, not, has nothing to do with just a feeling. Feelings come and go. I get really sick of you know, when I hear somebody say, follow your heart, you can't go wrong. Seriously? Because my heart's evil. And I know if I followed my heart, you know, I wouldn't have very many friends and I'd be a bad person. But this love doesn't do that. It's active. Has nothing to do with feelings. It's an action word. So as we look at it, oh, let me say one more thing about that. We live in a world that really doesn't get this kind of love. I would, I would contend that nearly 90% of the time you hear love, that word, in any song, in any movie, in any TV, magazine, book, any time you hear that word, they do not mean this. They mean one of those other loves. The, the, 
We call this series Crown Point Corinthians because we are in the same situation in a lot of ways that the Corinthian church was in, and this is another example of that. I want you to imagine it like this. Um, we were talking to one of my former students, Pastor Nick and I were talking to one of my former students today and just asking him about the trans. He just finished a year at Evangel. We were asking him about that. One of the things he mentioned is, yeah, I got together with some of my friends, you know, from high school, and they changed. He said, oh, really? Like what? And he said, well, they cuss. They're doing all this stuff. And, I and as we were talking to him, it just kind of dawned on me. That's because of who they're surrounded by. Their entire world is pressuring them in a certain direction, which is completely the opposite direction of, of the way of the Lord and the way God wants us to live. The Corinthians were in the same position. Everything, all of their gods they worshipped, any of you have seen any depiction of a Greek god, you know that they were full of human flaws and selfish and cruel and they, they scheming. They were horrible, horrible examples of how to live your life. And we have the same thing today. I mean, it's so difficult to pick out a sports figure who you can, who I'd want to buy a jersey of. Because eventually they're going to do something that's going to embarrass me and be completely counter to everything I believe. The same thing with anybody on TV or a movie or, you know, I, you probably you have the same situation. We'll think, oh, there's a new show coming on, you know, especially when the fall TV shows come on. And you think, oh, that might be good or might be funny. And then you watch it for five minutes and realize, nope. It's steeped in the, in the worldview that our world has, that it's all about sex and selfishness and taking advantage of other people. And then they mock, mock Christianity and values, and that's what they live. And you look at that, that's the same world the Corinthians were in. And Paul is talking to these Corinthians who were recently pagan, and he's trying to redefine for them. Now, they had this word agape. They knew what it was. But nobody lived it and nobody practiced it. And what he is doing is he's elevating a form of living, a way of life, a belief system, Christianity, above and distinct from everything else around them. And when you look at this verse and think of it this way, yes, you could apply it to your marriage relationship, but apply it to every other relationship that you have. So let's, let's read on and, and see some more of his poetic prose and see what he's saying. He defines love. He says he tells us here eight things that love is. Love is patient. Is the world patient? No. Love is kind. Kind isn't very manly, though, is it? It's not what we elevate in our society today, but love is kind. Kindness is active. Did you ever think of kindness as being active? Kindness isn't just something that we say, he's a nice person. No, what makes him kind and a nice person is he does things for other people, goes out of his way, self-sacrificially gives. That's kindness. He does not envy, does not boast. Our world is all about boasting, all about elevating oneself and self-promotion. It is not proud. Man, that cuts, doesn't it? Is not proud, is not rude. <laughs> I think rudeness is is almost required of our athletes today. Rudeness is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Now, this is probably a good reason to use it in a wedding, right? Because <laughs> some of us struggle with that. 
I mean, we say we forgive and we forget, and then when something happens again, hey, remember when you keep no record of wrongs? That is unconditional, self-denial, self-sacrificial love, if you can do that. Not easily angered, keep no record of wrongs. Do you want people to treat you like this, though? Man, I do. I need this kind of grace. Then I should be willing to give that to somebody else. Then he lays out these... Oh, there's a couple more. Uh, Does not delight in evil. Does not delight in evil. I read something a couple weeks ago that has been just kind of... I don't know if this happens to you, but I'll read something and it'll just kind of ruminate or germinate in my mind. Kind of roll around, knock around in there. A lot of room in there to bounce around. Because it's convicting me and... It's something that I feel like God is dealing with me about. And I haven't written it down. I haven't put it in the computer. I haven't done anything with this thought. But but when I was preparing this sermon and I read that, doesn't delight in evil, I thought, God, I I don't delight in evil. What are you trying to say? And here's the quote I heard. It said, too often we're willing to... um, willing to to watch things or see things and maybe get some enjoyment from a distance out of something that literally grieves the heart of God. I thought, wow, do I do that? Is it a TV show? I might just watch for a few minutes and think, oh, that's funny. I mean, it's not Christian. It's not right, but it's funny. Is it a comedian? Maybe I shouldn't be listening to or something like that. Does not delight in evil. I would prefer to think doesn't delight in evil is like the gladiators or something, you know, something I would never do. But I think it's deeper than that and more than that, and I know God is dealing with, with me in this. But rejoices in the truth. Here's what love does do. Love rejoices in the truth. It always protects. Anytime you see a word repeated, Again, this is a rhetorical device. It's, it's something that you do probably subconsciously, maybe with your kids, <laughs> scolding them or something. But always, he uses always four times. That is unusual. He's trying to say always. Did you catch that? He's trying to say always, every time, always. Always protects who? I think, again, we shortchange ourselves if we just apply this to marriage. Because I'm going to always protect my wife from her embarrassment, from bad guys, whatever. But this kind of love isn't really limited to that. And we are called as Christians to always protect everybody. Not just, it's not limited. Always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Active. Every one of these are active things. As Paul defines what this love is, and he lays this new way of life out for the Corinthians, he's doing the same things for us. He's telling us, you have lived a certain way all your life, and everybody around you is living that certain way. And you are going with the crowd. It's the easiest way to go. But I'm calling you to a different life that is completely radical and totally different than everything you've learned and everybody around you. So love versus the Corinthians. <laughs> now here's something that I don't know if you picked this up. I didn't upon first reading it. But what Paul is doing here 
is he's helping them see he's tying this directly back to some of the things he scolded them about earlier. I don't know if you remember in chapter 3, he scolded them about being jealous. And now he's telling them that agape love is not jealous, does not envy. Back in 4.6, he was scolding them about being self-promoting. And he's saying, real love doesn't do that. Do you, so do you see how he's using this emotional, beautiful prose about love to again kind of chide and correct them on the things that he had already been correcting them on? He had told them earlier he would, they were shameful in 5.2 and 11.4, and then that they're easily provoked in chapter 6. Moving on here, he says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Remember how much they loved prophecy? Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That is beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. And I know for some of us, as Pastor mentioned, the Holy Spirit may be quickening certain things to your mind that maybe I haven't said or I haven't implied in this passage of Scripture. And I love that God does that, especially with this beautiful passage of Scripture. I do want to point one thing out. Some people would say that the reason you don't see gifts in the church today is because of this verse right there. When perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. And what they say is that the tongues and prophecy and the gifts were the imperfect thing, but that the perfection was coming. And they would say that the perfection was either the finished canon of Scripture or church, you know, formal church government, that kind of thing. But I would contend that what he's really talking about is pretty clear here. But now we see poor reflection. Then we're going to see face to face. I mean, who are you going to see face to face? Jesus Christ, the, the redeemer of our soul. And what he's trying to say to them is everything that you have elevated and thought you were all that and thought you had it all together and you were so great about these things, it's only a shadow of what's to come. It's a poor reflection of really what God has for us. He was trying to help them understand that as great as these gifts are, there's something better than all of that. The guiding principle for really this entire letter this entire letter is love. Now, as you've looked at, as we've looked at different things and Paul has scolded them, I hope you have seen how Paul has scolded them in love. That's how God does us. He's not a cruel father who, who just creates horrible situations for us and we fall apart and things are hard. That's not what he wants for us. Instead, it's all about him guiding us in love and helping us to find the truth. And what Paul is saying to these people is, love needs to be the thing that guides everything in your life. Now, that's not really popular today, is it? That wouldn't be how most people would see the world. 
That seems kind of soft, doesn't it? Imagine how it was in their culture. No different. This was a radical thought. The idea that you would put other people before yourself. The idea that you would prefer them and do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. That's the guiding uh, principle. Now, again, he is kind of giving them that backhand and slap again. When he said, I used to be a child when I did what you do. That's what he's saying. I mean, it's beautiful when you read it in that, in that prose there, but if you f- put it in context of the whole book, he's kind of saying, yeah, when I acted like you and, and was childish, I did those things. But then I became a man. And he's basically saying, I think you need to grow up. He's telling them, these gifts are great, but they're temporal. They're just for here. They don't last into eternity. You won't need these in eternity. He's saying as great as they are, and they are great. And later on, we'll hear Paul say, I speak in tongues more than any of you. He talks about that. He talks about prophecy. We know from his life that healing followed him. I mean, he, <laughs> this happened. This was part of who he was. He was not in any way diminishing the gifts. What he was trying to do is to get them understand that the gifts, as great as they are, are temporary. They are not eternal. He summarizes really the whole letter and he talks about that this is from God. Here's, let, me, let me give you some of the things that maybe this might remind you of. When he talks about love being the basis of all this, remember when he talked about how you shouldn't be having the lawsuits, but you should be able to take the wrong and, de- and just deal with it? That's love. That's agape love that does that. Remember when he talked about preferring the weaker brother? And, and if eating meat at all would make someone stumble, then he would never do that. That's self-denial because you love somebody. That's a choice you make to deny your rights for the rights of another believer in Christ. Remember when he talked about considering others better than yourself? That's agape love. Remember when he talked about submitting to God-ordained order in the church? Who does that? The only people who do that are people who, who deny their self because they love God and they love in this agape sense. Even when pastor preached, in fact, I was wondering at first, pastor, if when you preached on, the ele- on chapter 11, if that's why all these women weren't here today. But then I remembered that, now Pastor Jeremy's doing a special Mother's Day deal today, so a lot of the moms are upstairs. But even that is about agape love, not demanding your rights. Remember when he, even, even far back in the beginning when he talked about not squabbling over what teacher or leader you follow. That's all about submitting and loving. He talked about the body of Christ, the hurting with the hurting. That is agape love. Basically what he's doing is using this chapter 13 almost as a fulcrum that the whole book tilts on. He's saying this defines it all. Knowledge puffs up, he says, but love builds up. Not elevating one spiritual gift above another. Remember how he ended chapter 12? In chapter 12, he was talking about how, you know, all these things fit together. God has given certain gifts. And he he talks about the gifts and how that they had overemphasized one gift. And then he says, let me show you a better way. And then he says, it's about love. Because if you have love, you're not going to do those things. (laughs) So uh, Gordon Fee, he's a a great Assembly of God uh, theologian. He says, Possession of, of the spiritual gifts is not a sign of the spirit Christian love is. <laughs> but Paul goes on to talk about love itself is not a gift. 
Love is the love is the way that we live. It's a lifestyle wherein we live and use the gifts. Love itself is not the gift. One last thing I wanted to tell you about this is that love is from God. This love, this agape love. The rest of those loves come pretty naturally to us because that's who we are. This love, if you struggle with this, then you are a normal human being. Because this is the type of love, this is the way God has loved us. Think about this for a minute. There is no way and we have never earned his love. Not only that, you can't get away from his love. But, but all of us either know somebody in this type of situation or maybe we've had this experience with somebody where we, where we have loved them, but they've, they've pushed us too far and we're done, right? And you may love them, but you can't give anymore. And I think, I, I think there's reasons and times where that's appropriate, and I get that. But with God, that's never the case. I love somebody said this once. He said, you know, thank God he doesn't give us what we deserve. You know why he doesn't do that? Because he agape loves us. And what Paul is saying here is that we as Christians, the way we're supposed to live is agape love. We don't demand our rights. We don't, we, we just don't do that anymore. We extend love regardless, unconditionally, no matter what, no matter if we get it back or not. None of those things will determine whether or not we love. Now, if you're like me, then you've fallen short in this. If you're like me, then even as we're talking tonight, there's been times where you've thought, ouch, I just don't do that all the time. And I can't do that to everybody at every time. Well, you know what? That's why God, that's why God is here to help and to help us be what he wants us to be. He's not the kind of God who's, who, who gives us the standard of living, says, okay, you need to get up to here and get there by yourself. He doesn't do that. What he does is he says, I will help build you into this, this person that I want you to be. And then he gives us people who will help us do that as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He gives us people over us who can help guide us further along, who maybe are a little ahead of us in the walk. That's how what he does. And, and he even gives us people who who maybe aren't as far along in Christianity, who we can teach and impart some things to. How many of you know that when you teach something, you learn it better? And when you tell somebody, you need to be living like this, and then the Holy Spirit pricks your heart and says, yeah, you do too. <clears throat> yeah, he's good at that. Yeah. This, this is the God we serve. He calls us to love like that, and he, that's the love he gives to us first. So yes, it applies to our marriages. Goodness gracious, of course. And if you could love your wife like this, then that will carry you through the times where the Eros love ebbs and flows. If you can love your family members like this, then that will carry you over the times where they've done you wrong and things have been rough between you and the storge love isn't, isn't where it should be. If you can love like this, then... <laughs> then you don't have to depend on that phileo-type love, which is so conditional. And, and if you're just like me and we get along, then I can hang out with you and like you. It's better than that. It carries us beyond all that. Not only that, you know, we say that our motto here at this church is love God, love others. We meant this kind of love, that agape. Do you, do you know how freeing 
and, and man, just how people want that kind of love. They're drawn to that, that you would actually care about them and accept them just the way they are. People are dying for that. They need that so desperately. Let's do this for a minute. Let's just shut our eyes for a second. And I'm going to do something with you that I've done in a lot of sermons over the years, or a lot of weddings. But I'm going to do it with you today, and I want you to think of it like this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read this portion of Scripture again, but this time I'm just going to kind of randomly insert some of your names in there. And I'm not doing it just because, well, I do believe you, you demonstrate these, this love, but I want it to be personal. I want it to be because Teresa loves this way, because Mary loves this way, Amy loves this way. And if you could, if you could insert your own name every time. So let's, if you just keep your eyes closed and kind of let this thought kind of come over your heart and mind for a moment. If Bill speaks in the tongues of men and angels, but he doesn't have love, he's only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if Carol has the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, but she doesn't have faith, that, or has, and then she has a faith that can move mountains, but doesn't have love, then she is nothing. And if Rick would give all his possessions to the poor and surrender his body to the flames, but he did not have love, he would gain nothing. Summer is patient. Trip is kind. Jerry does not envy. Shirley does not boast. Oh, Brittany is not proud. Nick is not rude. Lori is not self-seeking. Dennis is not easily angered. Dave keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, Wilma does not delight in evil, but she rejoices in the truth. Michael always protects. David always trusts. Deborah always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For if we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. With your head still bowed, here's just a question between you and God. As we've been talking tonight, is there a place where maybe the Holy Spirit has convicted you a little bit and said, You've come up short here, and I've called you to something higher, and I want to make you into the image of, of Christ. 
He's our God. He desires that for us, and He will do that work in you. If that is you, and you would just cry out to Him for a moment, He will answer you. Maybe there's a person in your life that you are finding it very difficult to love like this. First of all, no, they don't deserve it, and we don't either. But I'm going to pray with you that God would help you with that. Let's, let's pray together, and as I pray, I just want you to pray along with me using your own words, your own ideas, but just kind of along the idea that I'm praying. Father, I, we come before you, and we know that there are areas where we fall short.